we're going to be looking at verses 33 to verse 47. And uh, as I mentioned before, this is Friday morning. Um, it is between 9 a.m. and 12 noon on a Friday. Jesus is on the cross of crucifixion, paying the debt, the sin debt, a debt uh, we could have never paid. And he's doing it not for himself, but he is doing it for vile sinners like you and like me. Uh, last time in our text, we were in verse uh, 27 and 28, where I said to you that Jesus was crucified to save others, not himself, even though he was the Son of God and a great king. And there are two things I mentioned uh, from verse 27. And the first thing is that the great king was crucified with sinners. For it says in verse 27, uh, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. These convicted robbers were directly connected to Jesus because they were sinners. And... Uh, they were not merely, as I mentioned last time, petty thieves. They were really highwaymen. They, they, they were robbers who made, a, made it a career to rob innocent victims while they were traveling from place to place. And usually one crime led to another crime led to another crime. So there was many things going on as uh, these robbers were committing their sins. Jesus is placed smack right in the middle of these two criminals, and Jesus was the most important person who held centered place between two sinners who were dying justly for their crimes. Jesus was, of course, fulfilling prophecy here, where the Bible tells us that he was numbered with the transgressors. This is what he was doing there. And then also remember, Jesus was not about saving himself, he was about saving his people, which required Jesus to stay on the cross until all the saving work was finished and complete. And then the next thing is that the great king was crucified for sinners. That is, Jesus was fulfilling his mission, that he was not dying for the righteous, for there are none, but was the substitute sacrifice for all kinds of sinners. As it tells us in Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we may become the righteousness of God in him. It's hard to believe that Jesus Christ would die for the helpless, for the ungodly, for all kinds of sinners uh, who have sinned to all kinds of extents, and then to die for his enemies. But that's exactly what he came to do. And so this morning, as we pick it up in verse number 33, we see that Jesus' vicarious sufferings were so unique and by unique I mean one of a kind, that they were accompanied by 
unusual, one-of-a-kind happenings. And we're going to mention that there, there are actually three strange, unusual, but very unique happenings that are recorded by Mark, the Gospel of Mark. He doesn't record all of them, only particular ones. And the first one he records while Jesus was on the cross is that there was going to be an unusual but unique darkness that would take place while Jesus hung on the cross. Three hours of darkness, a matter of fact, from 12 noon to 3 p.m. And look at verse number 33. It says, when the sixth hour came, the sixth hour being noon, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, so that would be 3 p.m. So the, the darkness came at a time of day when the sun would have normally been at its highest. Also, this strange darkness lasted three hours and ended before the sun went down. Further, to my knowledge, this was not a solar eclipse because I believe it's astronomically impossible when the moon is nearly full. Now, if it was any kind of eclipse, it was definitely miraculous. Some linguists say that the Greek phrase, darkness fell over the whole land, cannot mean only land or country, but must mean the whole earth. When the light of the sun is shut off, the day half of the globe is made dark. And if the day half of the globe is made dark, that means the whole world is dark. So the Gospel of Luke actually tells us that in verse 45 of Luke chapter 23, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two, the New International Version says the sun stopped shining. And of course, many of you have the ESV, the English Standard, Standard Version, says while the sun's light failed. In other words, the translators were trying to get a sense of what exactly happened there. Of course, they didn't have a worldwide network like we have, where you can know what's happening somewhere else in the world at, uh, uh, in a second. So they, we have to depend on what the Spirit of God records for us in Scripture. So the possibility of when Jesus was dying on the cross, the whole world was in this a, a complete darkness is probably the case. I would lean toward that is what was taking place there. And really the only conclusion one can honestly come to is that this darkness was wholly miraculous. God darkened the sun's light precisely at the moment that the father hid, actually the father had to abandon his son who had become sin for us. At that moment, the just suffering in the place of the unjust who deserved, of course, the unjust deserved only punishment. So the darkness ended at the moment of Jesus' death. 
darkness in Scripture symbolizes the world of evil for which Jesus has come to bring salvation. Darkness has often, in Scripture, signified judgment. Several passages came to my mind. One would be in, uh, two would be actually in the Minor Prophets. Uh, Joel recorded that there would be a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Not that that referred to this, but the sense that it is not unusual for a prophet of God to mention the power and authority of God over creation and even over the sun's light. Even the prophet Amos tells us it will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. So it's, it's, it was not an uncommon thought for one reading Scripture and studying Scripture that God can do such a thing. But this was very unique because it was right at the moment that the Father had to turn his back completely on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that really leads us to a second unusual thing that happened at the cross. And I'm calling it an unusual, unique forsaking. If you notice what it says in verse number 34, it says, at the ninth hour, that's three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, or sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So at that particular moment, there was something very unusual and unique that happened, that Jesus' cry of dereliction reflects the heart of Jesus' purpose in his first coming, that is, to die and bear the penalty for human sin. Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So Jesus was truly, truly forsaken by the Father. Now why did that take place? Because the world's sin and curse laid upon Jesus Christ. And isn't it, is it not sin that the Word of God tells us is the very thing which separates us from a holy God. It separated Adam and Eve from God in the garden, where they were blocked from the fellowship they had with God prior to that sin. And that sin has fallen upon all of us, and our sin is the thing that keeps us from God. Unless that very thing is removed, taken care of completely, we can't be saved, or we can't even have a relationship with God. We can't even come into the presence of God. I, I really love that passage of Scripture from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 59, verse number 2, which says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And then it says, And your sins have 
hidden his face from you so he does not hear. So it's, it's this very fact in Scripture that it is our sin that prevents us, that blocks us, that separates us from a holy God. As was said already, crucifixion is a very horrible way to die. It was agonizing, it was humiliating, it was exhausting because it was designed to be slow and painful. Yet, Jesus' greatest agony was not physical, even though the physical part was necessary. It was rather the agony of his soul as he bore the guilt of the world's sin and experienced the greatest horror of the cross. And the greatest horror of the cross was the complete abandonment of the Father. And I mean total abandonment of the Father. And only by Jesus being fully and actually forsaken could the full price of redemption actually be paid. Only by Jesus fully paying for our sin could salvation become a reality. Also, the forsaking meant that Jesus bore the full wrath of God. He bore the full penalty of sin for us so that we could be saved. So the darkness and the agonizing cry of Jesus went together. Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The confusion of sin comes in by the question. It's important to note that in the last three hours of his life, Jesus demonstrates that he, will, he really still possessed physical strength. He had not reached utter exhaustion. In fact, it says there, it says several places in our text, his voice was strong and able to speak loudly. It says Jesus cried with a loud voice. So that means that his human nature, clothed with his divine nature, left Jesus to stand alone in the three hours of agonizing darkness when the Father turned completely away from him. I believe that this is what Jesus trembled over and shed tears of blood over in the garden this very instant right here when he had to bear this separation from the Father, which he never experienced before. This is something the Lord Jesus never experienced before. And he never will experience it again. And maybe this is another reason for the cross. So the, the Lord himself would not have to experience any separation again from his Father and from the Spirit of God. So, again, this was prophetic. It tells us in Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this was already in the mind of the writers of Scripture that this would come, there would come a time, uh, this Messianic Psalm 22, 
Psalm 22 would, of course, happen historically, and, and it did happen historically. So sin causes confusion, causes spiritual deafness, and causes misunderstanding. And of course, even at the cross, there was still this misunderstanding. And I want you to notice several things also at the cross, and particularly the misunderstandings that actually become unconscious prophecies of the significance of Jesus' death. In verse number 35 and 36, it says in verse 35, when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. And then in verse 36, some ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him to a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. In other words, the mockers distorted Jesus' words. Because Eloi, Eloi is actually an Aramaic word that means my God. You can't mistake that. My God, my God, Eloi, Eloi. So that means they weren't crying for Elijah, or uh, it, it didn't mean Elijah. However, there was a belief during the day that Elijah would precede Messiah and introduce Messiah to the Jews. So the mockers gave him a drink of sour wine, and the reason why he, they did give him a drink of sour wine is because he asked for it. Not recorded here in in Mark, but recorded in the Gospel of John where it says after this, John 19, verse 28, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. That's when they lifted up a hyssop branch to his mouth for him to drink it. Now, of course, that also was an indication something definitely would take place. But these people waited in vain for Elijah to come. And the reason why is they already misunderstood everything that was going on when it came to the cross and when it came to the prophets, when it came to the Psalms. And you know, in our day, unless we understand the death of Jesus in light of the consequences of the wages of sin, the cross is just a symbol. It's just an emblem. It's just a piece of jewelry worn around your neck or earrings in the ears. That's all it is. And many people who walk around with such things don't believe the significance of the cross. They don't believe what actually took place there. Matter of fact, they don't even know what took place there. They're totally in the dark about it. And so anybody who does not understand what the scriptures say about the cross are going to come to the wrong conclusions. They're going to come to the place where they come up with their own stuff. So on the cross, Jesus' mind 
reviewed the whole scope of, prophet, of the prophetic word and actually checked off one by one right down to the end of where he says, I thirst. So in other words, the Lord was really in full possession of his mental faculties when he cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, at that particular point, here is where the scripture clearly gives us the effects of the cross. And the first would be that Jesus dies and completes God's plan of salvation via the vicarious suffering on the cross, where if you notice in verse 37, it says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. In other words, Jesus actually dies because he has taken on sin and the wages of sin is death. Jesus not dying for his own sin, he was not, he was sinless, but dying for the sins of others. Jesus is said to have spoken seven times on the cross. I mentioned a few of them, but already several have been listed, and one of them in verse 34 of Mark 15, it was a cry of horror, and that horror Horrible cry was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Coming from the lips of Jesus. Then there was the cry of torment. I am thirsty. And then there was the cry of victory. Mark records it like this. He breathed his last. The Gospel of John records it like this. It is finished. All right? It, it's that word that we using evangelism, to telestai. Telestai means Jesus brought it to an end. He finished it. He completed it. He, compl he accomplished redemption. He paid the redemption price in full. And it was at that particular point of completion, he bowed his head when everything was accomplished and he uttered, a loud cry, and breathed his last. That means he actually died. And of course, there was in the Gospel of Luke the cry of a commitment. And that commitment was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So the forsaking of the Father had passed when death set in. When Jesus died, he placed his soul in the hands of the Father. When all had been endured, and Jesus cried, it is finished, he yielded up his soul into the Father's hands as a ransom for many. And at some point, the promise that he gave to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, took place. It's hard to follow that. We just don't know exactly everything that happened. So after Jesus said, it is finished, and everything was fulfilled according to Scripture, some immediate and significant 
things started taking place. Yes, also unusual. That, that does bring me to the third unique and unusual thing that took place, and that was this, an unusual temple event. Remember, the temple was the place that people came to approach God, to worship God, to bring their sacrifice, to confess their sin. That was the place they came. That was the place of worship. That was the place God required them to come. Well, what happened at that particular point? The sanctuary of God's presence is opened up, signifying a new access to God is made possible. And if you notice, look what it says in verse number 38. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew records it this way. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. See, the inner veil, remember, there was an outer veil when you went into the sanctuary. Then in the, that area was the, the table of showbread, was the, uh, the lampstand, was the table of incense. All right, and that's where the priests ministered, got things ready. Right in front of them was the inner veil into the Holy of Holies. That inner veil can only be entered one time a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement, and that was by only one priest. And the people knew, the priests usually used to have bells uh, embroidered on the bottom of their... Um, their garments, and when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies that one time, with the blood that was already offered for the people's sins, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, as the, the priest outside, as long as they heard the bells moving, they knew he was still alive. In other words, he was doing everything the way God required it. All right? In fact, some say that there was a rope tied to his leg also that uh, was led out of the sanctuary that if somehow they no longer heard the bells, they would be able to pull him out. But as long as they heard the bells, as long as they heard the movement of the high priest, everything was fine. The people would rejoice because they knew that their sins for that year would be covered, would be forgiven. And so, therefore, everything went well. So, what we see here is that this inner veil that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies in the temple sanctuary, this mighty curtain, it was probably 60 foot by 80 foot, and it was torn in two by the invisible hand of God from top to bottom, and it was torn in two the moment that Jesus died. Everything was accomplished. In other words, there's a new way to God now. There's a new way into the presence of God. You don't need priests. You don't need a sacrificial system anymore. You don't need all this elaborate stuff anymore to come into the presence of God. You have some new way, a better way, and that's what Hebrews writes about. It writes about a better way, that the tearing of the great curtain was God's proclamation that the Jewish high priest ministration 
was at an end. In fact, by 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, it was destroyed, uh, but also the sacrificial system was destroyed. There's no reason to sacrifice anymore. And of course, Jesus now had entered the Holy of Holies with his atoning blood once for all, making a new way, a better way to God through a new veil, through the veil of his own flesh. In fact, take your Bibles very quickly and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And I want you to notice a few passages, verse 19, verse 22 of Hebrews 10. And while you're turning there, According to Hebrews, all true Christians have confidence now to enter into the presence of God because Jesus had opened the veil, this new veil, by his death. So, in other words, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Notice in Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 19. It says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. The veil that is his flesh. In other words, this veil that blocked people from the presence of God was replaced by a new veil. And that was the veil of Jesus' own flesh. That, see, he took care of on the cross everything that the priest took care of leading up to the Day of, of Atonement, but he did it forever. You know, one thing when you're reading the Old Testament and you read all the stuff the priest had to do, I mean, there was sacrifice after sacrifice. These guys were exhausted. I mean, they, they, they were truly exhausted. Matter of fact, by 50 years old, a priest was done. He, he was like rele relegated to the guard shack. He was rele relegated to help the other priests do their job because they were so exhausted by so many sacrifices had to be offered before God so the sins of the people can be atoned for and covered for just one year. And this went on year after year after year after year. Notice from verse 21 of Hebrews chapter 10. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, he is saying there that, listen, not only is the inside clean, but the outside is clean too. That means now you are clean to go into the presence of God. And who does that? Christ does that by his blood. So see, we don't have to have all this ritual and all this stuff that went on. In fact, this event was so significant that the priest had to give up all the ceremonies and rituals of the temple. And why is that? Because the fulfillment of all those ceremonies and rituals were brought to an end and found their full fulfillment in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sin of the world. The death of Jesus Christ made these sacrifices unnecessary because his death, our sins 
because of his death, our sins were completely forgiven and fellowship with God had been restored. So that means when the reality, Christ, to which the shadow was pointing, when Christ came and shed his blood, historically, the shadow gradually faded away, having served its purpose. The Levitical priesthood and the law that guided it and the sacrifices that were daily offered were set aside because a better hope had come. The finished work of Christ. So then that Jesus can do and has accomplished what the old priesthood could have never have done. And what is that? He can give us access to God. He can do everything so we have access to God. You know, there's, there's many religions. And all of them have some works-based procedure. And of course, also in their procedures, there's this kind of like, man, I hope I can please God. And I hope that I'm good enough or do what I, is required of me so I can go to heaven or wherever they're going. But they never can get any assurance that that could ever be true. In fact, in our day, religious pluralism abounds everywhere you go. But I, I really have to warn you about pluralism. Theologian Don Carson dis- defines pluralism as, listen to what he says, the view that all religions have the same moral and spiritual value and offer the same potential for achieving salvation, however salvation be construed by any particular group. That is the mindset of our day. The pluralist question is this. Is the work of Christ necessary for salvation? Or are there other bases for salvation? See, the pluralist, in other words, many ways to God, another way of saying that, believe that Jesus is the provision that God has made for the Christian. But there are other ways of getting right with God and gaining eternal bliss in other religions. See, the work of Christ, in other words, is useful for the Christian, but not necessary for the non-Christian. This is the mindset that pervades our day in, in a large way. Scripture strongly presses upon us the impossibility of eternal salvation outside of Christ and how it's mentioned in the Gospels and in Scripture. If it is impossible, it says in Hebrews, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, which was the initial plan of God, at least to have people's sins covered for a year, if that's impossible, then it's just and even more so impossible that a Muslim could achieve salvation by 
keeping the five pillars of Islam and the, all the other stuff that goes with it. And the Hindu can, by their resolutions of renunciation, accomplish salvation, or the Buddhists, keeping their ethics, can accomplish eternal salvation and forgiveness of sins, or the Sikhism patterns of salvation can also accomplish that, or even Catholicism, which I came out of, a system of, in, of obtaining inherited, inherent righteousness by keeping the sacraments. Again, it's still a works-based system. I have to do something and hope I can have my sins forgiven and eternal life. Or any other works-based system, and there's many of them out there. There's hundreds of religions. And they all come from the mind of man. They all have been manipulated and formed and practiced because what man thinks God ought to do. And all you have to do is go to Scripture, study it, and you know what you have to do? Throw all the rest of it out and, and realize and conclude there's only one way to God, and it's through Christ. He's the veil. He's the one we go through to get to God because he accomplished everything that we could have never or any religious system could have ever accomplished so we can actually be made right with God. Well, so then, it cannot be possible. It cannot possibly be that his death was necessary for the salvation of some and not everyone. All scripture affirms that the work of Christ is the only necessary means provided by God for eternal salvation for all people for all times. I said this before. Abraham could never have been saved unless it was for Christ dying on the cross. His faith was in God and what God would do to make sure his salvation was secure. Moses could not have been saved if Christ did not die on the cross. No one could have been saved but for Christ dying on the cross. So, I say it like this, eternal life cannot be found outside of Christ. That's what you learn in Scripture. So completely does Jesus save those who receive him as Lord and Savior that he makes them fit to come to God, to dwell with God, and to be one with Jesus throughout all eternity. That's what God does. No one else could do that. So this event of the cross is so significant Something else we have to observe back in the Gospel of Mark so I can finish this morning. And it's this. I believe that this is, takes place in Mark for a particular reason. That I just said the door is open through the veil of Jesus Christ, right, into the presence of God. Well, if you notice, the Gentile or the heathen centurion joined in with Jesus' faithful Jewish followers in attesting 
that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice what it says in verse 39 of Mark chapter 15. It says, when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So, a heathen soldier who so powerfully and fearfully struck by Jesus' death and the events that occurred that day, all flowing in upon him, the darkness of that was so unusual. Matthew records the earthquake that was very unusual that took place where the earth shook and the rocks split in two. And then here it says Jesus' demeanor and character was so unusual, it was so like it shouldn't be. It caught his attention through his sufferings, the mockery of the religious establishment, the abuse of the soldiers, this, the miscarriage of justice, and it, it's recorded here the way he breathed his last breath. There must have been a strength that came over this soldier the way Jesus died, that he was way more than just a man. That there was something going on that day that was beyond him. And so this heathen soldier climactic conclusion was about exactly what Mark is about. Who is Jesus? All right? Who Jesus is in reality beyond all the lies and the misinformation of the press. He says in verse number 39, truly this man was the Son of God. Is that not an absolute, emphatic statement of testimony? This guy probably had no knowledge of the Old Testament, maybe scant knowledge. He was a Roman soldier. He did his job. And he concluded that this man, Jesus, was the righteous one. In fact, it's, it's recorded in... Uh, other translations of the King James, it says, certainly, he says, this man was a righteous man. And then also in the New American Standard, certainly this man was innocent, that Jesus was the righteous one, the man who was innocent. And if there was ever a claim to deity, this man, Jesus, was the real deal. This is what he, this heathen Roman soldier concludes. So you see something's going on here. See, the veil is broken open for the Gentiles, for the heathen, not just for the Jews. Salvation, in other words, is now for all peoples. Everywhere the gospel is preached. And then something else goes on. Because of this event, the, his faithful followers continue to follow him, but notice who's listed in verse number 40 to 42. These faithful women followers demonstrate by Jesus' special burial that he is the Son of God. Notice the women in verse number 40. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the less in Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him 
And there was many other women who came up with him from, uh, to Jerusalem when evening had already come because it was the day of preparation. That means the, it was right the day before Sabbath. On Friday, you would have had to prepare for the Sabbath and have everything done before sunset because at sunset on Friday, the Sabbath started. No one could work. So this is what is going on here. And it was the, where it says the day before Sabbath. So what's Mary Magdalene? You know, who is she? She was a woman, it says in Luke, who was healed of evil spirits and sickness. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons were gone out or cast out by Jesus. She's there at the cross, at the burial. She's there with the other women, meaning that if you put it all together, that Jesus seems to have authority now over all people and their human hearts by breaking it open to the Gentiles. He has authority over demons where this woman is now set free, forgiven, and now is following him faithfully. He has authority over death. Matthew 27 tells us, Mark doesn't record this, that the tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. When I think about that verse, and I said, man, that's a real horror story right there. All right? That is something that would be, imagine that you have somebody die who, who became a believer in Christ, and they've been dead for a long time, and they show up at your door. Isn't that freaky? Anyway. But see the power of God over death, over demons, over human hearts, and also over the stronghold of religious systems. Look what it says in verse number 43 and 46. And what I mean by that is this. The believing religious leaders demonstrate by Jesus' special burial the reality of who Jesus is. Now, notice, first of all, a secret disciple. Actually, two secret disciples, only one mentioned by Mark. All right, it says this in verse number 43. It says, Joseph of Arimathea came a prominent member of the council who himself was, a, was waiting for the kingdom of God. He gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, the actions of several absentee Sanhedrinists, remember the Sanhedrinists were against Jesus the whole time, but what we did not know that is that there were some Sanhedrinists that weren't for it. They were actually believers. So the action of several absentee Sanhedrinists who had concern for obtaining the body of Jesus in order to give Jesus a proper burial, and there were two courageous, courageous ones, Joseph of Arimathea mentioned here, and then in John chapter 9, verse 39, Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus met with Jesus at night? The whole story about being born again, the message I preached not too long ago where the serpent was lifted up on the standard, if you looked, you would be saved. Soon as Jesus said that to Nicodemus, that was it. Conversation was over. He looked, he believed in Christ, he was saved. So now he goes with Joseph of, of Arimathea and they go get the body of Jesus. Now, 
get this. You don't go get a body of a crucified criminal. You know what you do to a crucified criminal? You pull up the cart, you dump the body in the cart, and you dump it in a mass grave. You don't care about how they're buried. All right? That's all you have to do. Do it before sundown, before the Sabbath starts, and everything's fine. But that's not what's happening here. They're treating Jesus as someone very special. In fact, if you notice in verse 43, what kind of man was Joseph of Arimathea? He was a prominent member of the council. He was a high-ranking Sanhedrinist. Also, he was a man of hope in verse 43. He himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. He knew the scripture. He knew something was going to happen. He believed that was the time. He hoped it would be Jesus. He believed that Jesus was the one. So Joseph was waiting a long time for the kingdom of God to come. But the problem was Jesus did die. So was his hope shattered? In verse number 43, it also says that he was a courageous man. He got his courage together to go to Pilate. Why would Pilate believe a Sanhedrinist? He couldn't wait. They were like lice to him. Get, me, get them out of my presence. I can't take them. And now he's coming to get the body of Jesus. Also in, ver, in Matthew 27, verse 57, he was a rich man. But also Matthew 27, verse 57, it says something else that Mark doesn't record. Mark doesn't record some things because he takes, he's writing so things happen rapidly so you feel like you're there, and he assumes you know something maybe from the other Gospels, but that it says in Matthew 27, 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Now, why wasn't he public with it? Well, because of fear of the Jews, Joseph kept his faith hidden. But we see right here, not anymore. He was public with his faith. He came out with his faith now. Now, the next thing that we see here is a very surprised politician. Look at it, it says in verse number 44. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. Now, why was Pilate surprised? He was surprised because death by crucifixion was extremely slow. Even that, he should have been on the cross another three hours, before, at least before sunset. Or uh, maybe, a, maybe that's not right. But the thing is that he was, he would be on the cross a little bit further, and then because, it, of course, there was the preparation day and they had to get ready for the Sabbath, they would break you know, break the legs of the people who were being crucified to expedite the crucifixion. They would die by suffocation. They would suffocate, right? That's the way, the, they, the way they would die. And so Pilate's wondering here, wait a minute, this is too soon. He can't be dead yet. So it's still death by crucifixion, though exceedingly painful and usually very slow. Sometimes people linger two or three days Jesus had been 
already dead only after six hours of, of being on the cross was, was not normal for Roman crucifixion. Now, of course, unless Jesus voluntarily laid his life down by himself, which, of course, he did. So Pilate did not take Jesus as, at his word without an official confirmation by his soldier who was in charge. And once the official confirmation was received, Pilate granted the body of Jesus for burial to Joseph of Arimathea and, of course, to Nicodemus. Uh, and we know that this special burial meant something very important to not only the Jew, but also to taking a criminal and taking such care in preparing his body. Of course, this, uh, this was something that is mentioned in Scripture. Uh, Jesus was buried sometime before sundown on Friday. He had to be buried before sunset because that was when the Sabbath began, when no one could work. So the care and attention given to the body of Jesus was above and beyond the call of duty. We know in verse 54 that Joseph and Nicodemus obtained the burial materials. Uh, Joseph uh, bought the burial cloth or the shroud for wrapping the body. And Nicodemus bought the spices now, it's amazing to, to wrap the body and put spices in. They needed 100 pounds of spices. That's a lot of spices. Because as they wrapped the individual arms and legs, they would fill it in with the spices. All right? And, of course, that is to keep down the stench. Uh, and it was, of course, also that of respect. In verse number 46, they removed Jesus' body from the cross. In verse 46 also... They prepared the body and wrapped him in the linen cloth. In verse 46, uh, they laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of rock. And we know the tomb that had been, was hewn out of rock. Whose tomb was it? It was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. It was a brand new tomb. Nobody laid in that tomb. Um, and they put the body in that new tomb. And... Uh, and then, of course, in verse 46, it says, and he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. So they secured the tomb with a flat, circular, immense stone. It was set in the, in the groove uh, in the stone and held on a slant uh, to the left of the tomb opening, held there by a, a stopping block until it was released and the the rolling stone came down in front of the entrance and closed it. There was no way you were going to roll that stone back up. These stones were enormous. And, of course, it was to secure that tomb. And so all these things take place. And we have this singular group of ladies still hanging around. It says in verse number 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Josie's, were looking on to see where he was laid. The reason why they were looking is because they wanted to know where they put him so they can come back after the Sabbath to do the rest of the preparation work. 
But, of course, when they came back after the Sabbath, he wasn't there. Right? So, from a secret disciple to a surprise politician to a special burial to a singular group of ladies, all pointing to how unique the death of Jesus Christ was and how special it was so the Father made sure everything was taking place. So some thought they were killing Jesus and succeeded. Some thought possibly our hope in the Messiah is gone. Others didn't know what to think. But remember, it's Friday and Sunday's coming, right? So when resurrection comes, it all comes alive, right? It all comes alive. And because the Lord is raised from the dead, we are given the hope that we too will be raised from the dead. So all these things recorded in Scripture show how unique, how unique this event was, never again to be repeated. Jesus died once for all, the just for the unjust, so he can bring us to God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the goodness that you have given to us by giving us the scripture, by giving us the truth. Even though, Lord, we live in plural, pluralistic times, even though people are crying that there's many ways to God and everyone saying that their religion is the right way. We know, Lord, when we come to the word of God, it clears everything up. It makes everything understandable and it brings us to one person. And that's the person that was ordained before the world was created to be crucified. He was predetermined to be crucified for us. And we thank you, Lord, that not everybody knows this or believes it or understands it, but you've given it to us. So I, I, I want to just praise you for that, Lord. I pray the knowledge of the truth of salvation would be not something we keep to ourselves, but we, we broadcast it to those around us, to our family, our friends, our coworkers. And Lord, cause us, Lord, to also live it, that our words would be backed up by our actions. And Lord, we would be able to, if we've been a secret disciple like Joseph, we would go public and we would tell people and we would share our testimony. So I thank you, Lord, for the word of God and, and I pray, Lord, that we would always take it as um, your word and we would believe it and we would cherish it in our hearts and in our minds. And I pray this all this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.